Welcome to the Heart-Centered Therapist Podcast, the podcast created for you, the therapist who leads with your heart and loves serving your clients. I'm Cindy Gozanski, your host. I know that being a heart-centered therapist is immensely rewarding and powerful and intensely challenging and difficult. We're on this journey together. My mission is to help you continue loving your work as a therapist, surviving being a therapist, and feeling more connected as a therapist. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Heart Centered Therapist podcast. I am super excited today to bring you a guest, an icon in my world of therapy and He's really a humble icon, but well-known in the world of motivational interviewing, Stephen Andrew. Stephen Andrew is an LCSW, LADC, CCS. He's a storyteller, trainer, therapist, and author. I have a big introduction for Stephen, and I think it's really important. So listen carefully, and I can't wait for you to hear all about him and our conversation. So Stephen maintains a compassion-focused practice in Portland, Maine, and facilitates a variety of mutual aid support groups. He is a member of the International Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, MINT, since 2003, and he became a certified MINT trainer in 2019. Stephen is the co-founder of Agape Inc., which supports the Men's Resource Center of Southern Maine, whose mission is to support boys, men, and fathers, and oppose violence, and also Dignity for People Using Opiates, a radical movement to change the conditions precipitating the opiate epidemic in our communities. Agape Inc. also supports Inner Edge Counseling, which offers compassionate counseling services to those in need. There's a lot about MI for Stephen. Stephen has been Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Trained, Mighty Trained, and has over 100 hours of training in motivational interviewing. I think that's probably uh, a low amount of hours for him. He provides coaching and training domestically and internationally, Singapore, Iceland, China, Canada, Holland, Sweden, Poland, Turkey, and the UK for social service agencies, healthcare providers, substance abuse counselors, recovery coach specialists, criminal justice, vocational rehab, and other groups on motivational interviewing, addiction, co-occurring disorders, counseling theory, challenging adolescents, supervision and ethics for care professionals, men's work and the power of group work, as well as supervising a coding, coaching laboratory, and simulation lab and training for motivational interviewing. Very importantly, Stephen is the proud father of Sebastian. He is also co-author of Game Plan, A Man's Guide to Achieving Emotional Fitness, and the author of two recent books, Love in Action and Listening Deeply. It's my huge pleasure and privilege to welcome you, Stephen. It's a little uh, wild to hear somebody say your bio in front of you, so thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little humbled by that. I don't know who that person was that you just introduced, but uh, it sounded like somebody that's done a lot of work. You know, he has. I met him back in probably 2007, early in my career, 2006, 2007, took as many of your trainings as I could. And now I still send my student interns to your trainings. And you've been really influential in my 
career and my approach to therapy and working with people, and even in founding this podcast with the name Heart Centered Therapist. So let's start there. You know, I think we both believe in being heart centered therapists, but what does that mean to you? Well, I really, I really mean that you have to have a felt sense of what it's like to be the person in front of you. Um, you, you really have to merge into their soul and then differentiate. And by that emergence, they feel like they matter. And that mattering causes a confusion. And that confusion gives them space to begin to think about what the possibilities are. So I really believe that the definition of motivational interviewing, the definition of my work, is that we change people through the heart, then through the mind. And what we have done is that we've built a whole system based on changing people's thinking. And what we've done is stepped over the body and not really listen to the body, which is, of course, where all trauma is lodged, is in our cell structure. And what, what I'm interested in is how do you quiet the cell structure so that you can get to the place of hopes and dreams? This is such a great, a great place for us to start, right? So even just talking about that, it seems um, so much less judgmental, right? We all have cell structures, right? Mm-hmm. Quieting that cell structure that mm-hmm. has experienced injury and trauma. And then also that we all have hopes and dreams, but sometimes we have to get into that confused place. I love how you say that. You you see somebody, help them know they matter, and they get confused. Mm-hmm. Who has done that for them? Well, the trauma, you know, and I like to I like to expand the word trauma because I think uh, our culture starts to think about trauma. It thinks about family of origin. And it, it leaves out community of origin. It leaves out oppression. And oppression is the systematic training done by people of power about people with less power. And it really lives in the cell structure. When you grow up poor, it sits in your cells. And what ends up happening is that there's a whisper that comes, which I call a trauma whisper. And that trauma whisper says, I don't matter. And then if you experience stigmatization or oppression or trauma, both in the individual family of origin or community of origin, and you have that in yourselves, then there's a whisper. And that whisper is very interesting because what it is is a protection. It's not a bad thing. It's a protection. If I don't matter, then you can't hurt me. If I don't matter, you cannot shame me. And so the first whisper is, I don't matter. The second one is, I am not lovable. And the third one is, the world is not to be trusted. Now, if you think about when people come to see us as, and for, for some kind of counseling, support, helping, you know, when they come to see us, they, their anxiety goes up because who am I? What am I about? What am I going to do? Am I going to shame you? Am I going to judge you? And right. What ends up happening is the whisper comes right to the first session, right right to the very beginning. And that whisper needs something right away. And what it needs is empathetic understanding, that the only antidote to that toxic shame is empathy. And we're not, 
basically, if you could say that we're very skilled at it, we're actually not very skilled at it. We think a lot. We think, we, we assess a lot. We ask a lot of questions. And what it means to be heart-centered is to take a breath and let it drop to your heart and then have a felt sense of what it must be like to be there. What, what, what would they be thinking? What would they be feeling? Now, this is, a, a, this is the hard part because then we offer, we offer a gentle guess. Mm-hmm. And it has to be gentle. It has to be a guess because how would it be empathy? And I'm not repeating what they say to me. I'm gently guessing. And that means that I'm trying to understand what it's like to be you. That we're in this collaboration. And try to understand what it's like to be you. That's the empathy right there. That's the heart center. That's the that's the beauty of your title of uh, heart centered therapist. Is really like I'm. I, I you know we, we walk around saying empathy is walking in the moccasins of other people, or it, it isn't. It really is merging into their soul. And you lost yourself. You lose yourself in the moment of engagement with that individual. And when you lose yourself in that moment, you have a felt sense. It's almost like you could feel what it feels like to be them. Now, a lot of people then take that to their brain and think they have to fix it. When in fact, what they need to do is to just gently offer it. And when they gently offer it, then they're not going to be fatigued. They're not going to be stuck with it. They're actually offering it and they're moving it along. And what ends up happening is that the person then, if the whisper is, if I'm accurate here, that the whisper is, I don't matter. And somebody is willing to take the skillfulness to merge into my soul to say that I matter, then wouldn't I end up in confusion? Right. And isn't confusion the vulnerability that the people we serve, right, need to move along, to to even fantasize about yeah. a dream, a wish? That confusion, you've, you've said, you know, in, in like CBT terms is cognitive dissonance. And yeah. we've just, we've dived in so deeply here already. And I, I know that my listeners can feel your presence, can feel the, the presence and the um, the pace and, and the way in which you relate to people, people mm-hmm. like myself, as well as clients. And this is what we're describing. I just, I want to slow us down for a second, Stephen, because I mean, everybody needs to just rewind that, that first part about we meet a client they experience this trauma, those those three lacks of feeling like they don't matter, they're not lovable, the world is not to be trusted. So they are in our office thinking no one is there to be trusted. Of course, they're going to feel shame and anxiety. And what is our job, you said, to create empathic understanding and experience for them? And merge, merge into this soul like they matter. I mean, you, you, and when you guess, when you gently guess what it must be like to be them, they, they can feel the effort 
They can feel that somebody is trying to understand. That's a partnership. That's a collaboration of a duality, which is that I'm here to not be wicked smart. I'm not here to, to come up with the best solutions for it. I'm here to cause that confusion so that you begin to ask some questions about your own duality and your own ambivalence, if you will, your own internal struggle. And that internal struggle is the trauma whisper and the whisper of hopes and dreams. And, there's, and there is a duality and that the human experience is really an amazing duality. It's self-protective and it has hopes and dreams. The trauma side of, of us is protecting ourselves at all costs. We protect and protect and protect. And so those, those trauma responses aren't bad or negative. They have a purpose. And then the hopes and dreams part is the part that wants to connect to to have um, meaning, right? It, it, it wants to have, well, it, it, it wants to have connection. I mean, that's really what it wants. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think that it's so clear, the evidence is so clear that what people are yearning for is non-judgmental, compassionate connection. They're, you know, we keep thinking that they want some skills to manage their uh, trauma. And I'm going to tell you right now that when people are anxious, they don't remember any skills we give them, you know, and I'm probably going to be in trouble for this. But, you know, the truth is they don't need the skill. They need connection. They need a, a, a community. And that's part of the reason why that I have developed a, you know, these uh, eight to 10, eight support groups with eight to 10 people in them, which is that, you know, I'm interested in what am I moving people towards? Well, I'm moving them towards building compassionate communities, places where people can be fully themselves. And what are they going to be uh, touched by? Is they're going to be touched by empathy? They're going to be touched by compassion? I don't know if your audience, you know, there's so many confusion definitions about compassion. Um, but but yes, let's my, talk about it. Yeah, my, my definition is the ability to sit with the suffering, not to alleviate it, but the ability to sit with it. And what I've noticed that happens with clinicians and helpers is they can't tolerate sitting with the suffering. So they do a writing reflex. 100%. Their writing reflex is to make the person feel better. But what they don't understand is the person doesn't feel better. The worker feels better. The helper feels better. But not the people we serve. The person feels judged or that they're, that they're inadequate again. Uh not getting it right or they just check out well and, and helpers uh, therapists uh, they what ends up happening is they feel better and the clients and the people we serve very honestly are ex know that they're not lovable so 
when it happens, they have recreated their life experience and so they don't complain. And unless there's some fidelity for our work as a heart-centered therapist, if there isn't any fidelity for it, then we're not going to be able to notice when we're not doing it because we all are not doing it at times. At times, yes. That urge for the, the writing reflex is so strong in all of us. And some of that is the helping urge. But yes. what I love about, about your approach, Stephen, is, is you give us a way to kind of move into it deeper in a way that that is a lifestyle move of, of sitting with it, of, of merging with the person, of being like so empathic and empathetic with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we're creating a different relationship when things go well with our clients that they haven't had. They have had that relationship where somebody offers them skills or where somebody tells them what to do or gives them a suggestion. They haven't had that relationship of this attachment where there's non-judgment. I love the word. I I, I love your word of uh, attachment, you know, because there's a lot in the business about uh, attachments, formations, and so on and so forth, which to me are just what is the trauma whisper, you know, and that people have different manifestations of the trauma whisper that have different ways to deal with attachment. And that what we're trying to do is to create an atmosphere through compassion and radical acceptance. We're trying to create an atmosphere where there can be a healthy attachment. And therefore healing, just healing that particular belief that I am not lovable and that the world is not to be trusted. Now, if if you just think about the possibility of somebody comes and sits with you and they really feel like the world is not to be trusted. And that's the man of that. That's what's protected them, which I now call trauma resilience. It's trauma resilience in my mind, which is that this is their way of being resilient in the world based on oppression, based on stigmatization, based on the trauma is their This is their resilience. And what they're trying to do is to protect themselves from any further toxic shame. We have compassion for those moves, those protective trauma moves. And see it as resilience. And so if a person comes in and they're silent, for instance, and they don't say anything, all they're doing is protecting themselves. But what we hear in our heads is things like they're resilient. I mean, they're resistant or they're, they're, they're not, they don't want to be here, which is not the truth. All they're doing is reenacting what their trauma resiliency is. And it has very little to do with us. There is no such thing as a, a, a resistant clone. Mm-hmm. There's only the resistance between my head and my heart. We get that That's word it. out of our vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, because... It's, it, but if there is any, it's between here and here. It's between these two. And we, we you know, I try to stay out of the radical ideology here, but, but, you know, we live in a business that is very medicalized. And what it did was it said, let's assess, let's diagnose, and let's treat people. And that all has a fundamental belief that people are broken 
And why I fell in love with motivational interviews is the bottom line is that everyone is doing the best that they can with the resources they have. They're doing the best that they can with the resources they have. And that I can be a resource. I can be a connecting resource. This is a plug for my third book. It's going to come out this week, actually. This week? Yes. And it's called The Magic of Connection. And it talks about, you know, with that connection, that what ends up happening is that you develop uh, a, a softness in the trauma whisper. And when you develop a softness in the trauma whisper, then with vulnerability, a, the hopes and dreams can come forward. And before we finish this podcast, I promise to tell you what I think is the hopes and dreams. Great. That's going to that's gonna keep everyone listening. <laughs> that's the <laughs> idea. <laughs> Did you know one in five people will experience a mental health issue this year? Mentalhealththreads.com is your online shop dedicated to promoting mental health awareness and breaking the stigma surrounding mental illness. You can find fun, creative, and inspiring products like t-shirts, hoodies, and more, all with positive messages that remind us to take care of our mental health. Favorites like perfectly imperfect, your anxiety is telling you lies, it's okay to not do it all, and no risk, no magic. Plus, we have a special collection just for therapists, like our bestseller, I'm a mom and a therapist, nothing scares me. So come check it out at mentalhealththreads.com. Our mission is to start important conversations about mental health and to remind you that you are not alone. Check out mentalhealththreads.com today. As we talk about this trauma whisper, like let's just stay there for a minute and and look at the gentle guest because we don't want to dive into the hopes and dreams yet. Um, who comes in with I don't know, like so much self loathing, right? They're not lovable, right? And we we have that writing reflex to you know find a way to show them, oh yes, but there's this side of you that's that's so great, or don't you see what you did or whatever? What? Mm-hmm. Would you give us an example for like a gentle guess of how they're feeling when they present like, you know, with so much self-loathing? You can feel the whisper in your head that you don't matter. You can feel the messaging you've got all of your life that you can't do anything. You can't do anything with any kind of effectiveness. And then every so often you wonder, you just wonder, maybe I can and what I've done here is that I've said there's two sides. And what I'm trying to do is to say that people are made up of an internal struggle. And if you just sit on one side, then the truth of the matter is then they will stay there. This is the this is where I think Carl Rogers uh, had part of it, but he didn't have the whole, which is that he said, if you just meet people with empathy, positive regard, and a deep understanding, then they would move along. Well, actually, no. I think the therapist has to dream out loud. I think the therapist has to dream out loud. And so I think it it is a compassionate conversation with direction. And if people don't want to go there, it's very likely you don't know the level of toxic shame people have. In in toxic shame, and I want to make clear here, because we talk about shame a lot, but people need a bit of shame. That's where moral compass comes. 
But when they get too much of it, it becomes toxic shame. And toxic shame, it, it, it brings out three things. It, first, it brings out isolation. Now, if you think about his connection as the real healer, then you understand why people go the opposite direction and isolate themselves. Because that's what toxic shame says. You, you can protect yourself. It, absolutely. If you isolate yourself. Because then nobody can get to you and add to your toxic shame. And the second thing it does is it creates a, it creates a dual value. It creates a, a like a, like you, you believe in love and then you do something different than that. You, you are angry with your partner. You're screaming at them. You're, you know, you do a duality. And when you do that duality, you, you say, I love you. And then you're screaming that duality is based on toxic shame. It splits people, you know, and we have lots of words for that, but the truth is they split their values. So they want to be sober and then they find themselves relapsing. They want this and then they find themselves doing that. And that is what toxic shame does. It's, it says, I'm going to make myself be out loud. I'm going to show you my toxic shame. I'm going to keep it out loud and I won't be able to merge what I really want until I can find an audience of compassionate witnesses that in which I can put it out loud and therefore feel and get their reflection of empathy back in my direction so that I can actually say that toxic shame is not true. And that is not true. Right, who think who get maybe a little scared by anger or aggression. Think of it the way Stephen is describing this. This is that toxic shame coming out loud, right? That mm. that sense of I'm gonna put it out there. That's my only move. And yet deep down they want something different. Like that's actually their hope for maybe finally being seen and heard and, and that they matter. And here we go back to the trauma whisper. Hmm. Well, that you know, and and then you go to there must be a competing piece that creates the duality, right? That creates the duality of values. And the third thing that toxic shame does, which is actually, if we take a real hard look at it, we may not want to see it, but it lacks empathy for self and others. That toxic shame steals empathy. And that what ends up happening is that we have a lot more violence in our culture. We have a lot more violence in relationships. We have a lot, a lot more uh, overdose. I mean, things happen to people that have little or no empathy for self or others. This week, a young a person, you know, committed suicide and left three children behind. And he believed, he believed wholeheartedly in his mind that it, he was better off, they were better off. There was no empathy for what the impact will be of his suicide. On himself or others. Yeah, so. so himself or others. And that's what toxic shame does. It convinces you to not be empathetic for self or others and or others. And, and, and that is probably the most powerful. And why I think empathy is the antidote to shame 
why I think it's the antidote is really because if you give people empathy and they don't feel any empathy, then they can feel. And again, I go back to confusion because confusion creates the possibility of something new. And that's the part that maybe Carl Rogers missed is creating this confusion to to allow the client to have that other part the the hopes and dreams or the the change actually start to happen a different type of integration right and then when if 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 i if i'm consistent if i'm constant now my my belief is and people will talk about empathy empathetic understand most people believe that they have it and I, my, my sense is that people feel it, but they don't know what to do it. And so I think the best way to describe it is that it has five particular steps and it looks like Tai Chi almost. Okay. And then you see, the empathy and Tai you, Chi. Yes. And you see people and you see what they're going through and you pick up signals through their nonverbals. Then you listen to the content. And then you take the content and you drop, you take a breath, literally take a breath and take the content down to your heart and get a felt sense of what it must be like to be done. And then the th that's the third step. The fourth step is to offer it in a gentle way. And then the fifth step is to watch how it lands. Because the receiver is always, always correct. So you can feel the Tai Chi. You can feel the process. And what happens is that you can go through graduate school, you can go through PhD, and you can be an MD. You don't have to learn this, even though the 70 years of research, empathy is the entire, the on top of the skill that works the best in no matter what the helping field. By far, not, not just a little bit, but by far, empathy stands up. Now, do we have any accountability for that? Absolutely not. We have more accountability for notes and documents than we do for that empathy. But it's hard to get into the practice, a discipline of see, hear, Felt sense, offer, and watch how it lands. With the recipient always being right. Exactly. So Receiver always being correct. So when they say back to you things like, you know, yes, but, which are two very important words. When they say yes, but, what they're saying is you're not getting me. Your, your rhythm, your guess is not accurate. And I love what you say, Stephen, with that means that we're not completely hearing their trauma whisper then. And they can't move into their hopes and dreams until we really hear and get what their trauma, their pain, their protective moves are. That's the meaning of those for them. It's that they're seen, that they're heard, and that they're believed. And if they get those three things, they can quiet. By, by our emergence, I don't want us to think that we just emerged. We actually 
emerge and then differentiate. Emerge and differentiate, just like our breath. We go in and we connect with people. We'll never understand what it's exactly like to be them, but we'll get close to having a felt sense, and then they will differentiate. And in that rhythm, they feel like they matter. They feel like they're loved. They feel like they can trust because the rhythm is trustworthy. And that rhythm of compassion and empathy and being trustworthy means that I can quiet my trauma resiliency. I can quiet it down and I can get on with my hopes and dreams. And if we're listening, we'll even listen to people's hopes and dreams. They'll pop up. They'll, they'll start to come to the surface. Yeah. It's quite remarkable. That rhythm, and if, if you read Stephen's books, you'll you'll see more about that. But it's it's like this, this steady empathy, the steady consistency that you provide. Maybe we think mm-hmm. of it as attunement, but but that rhythm, it reminds me of, you know, how we're tr- we're in that relationship where, you know, eye to eye, ear to ear, where, you know, there, there are these like body kind of co-regulating things, a rhythm that really does happen if we're open to it. Again, that's the therapist, I think, taking a, a deeper stance with the client, getting out of your head, right? It's not going to be about thinking when you're doing the rhythm. It's a dance. It's a quite a beautiful dance. And, uh, you know, we, we constantly are confronting people with a series of questions or we confront people with uh, advice, uh, confront people with information. And, and all, of that, all of that does is it, it gets people out of the dance. The dance is the, this fluid process of I, I am here for you. I start every one of my sessions with a prayer internally and i say to myself i'm here for you and that sets me up to get out of who i am and what i'm about now sometimes i change it just because i like to change it to may i be of service to acceptance and compassion both of those and i want to be clear here i'm not interested in just engaging people i'm interested in engaging them with purpose I want to, you know, often people say, well, you know, I'm very good at engaging my clients. Well, that may be true. But what happens is if you don't take it anywhere, then people are stuck inside of the trauma whisper. So when they, they leave you, they go right back to it. But what you want to do is to leave people with the duality. You want to respect the trauma whisper, but you also want to respect it as bold. And that more is the whisper of hopes and dreams. In the literature for change, in in the literature for motivational interviewing, they call it change talk. I sort of got rid of that for a while now because I don't think people talk that way. I think people said, man, you're in change talk right now. You know, I don't think people do that. So, yeah, but even that is, is what you're saying is this the reason to have a purpose is like the guide, the direction to help the client reach something. And, and you're trying to be their guide with listening for those dreams. Yeah. When, when you talked in one of your books about the whisper of hopes and dreams, you said this 
beautiful quote. I believe that we should meet people where they dream and not from the perspective that there is something wrong with them that needs fixing. We should stop meeting them where they're at, but meet them where they long to be. So beautiful. Absolutely. You know, we, we you can hear people, every audience that I go to to train, I ask them, how many people have heard the phrase, meet people where they're at? Everybody raises their hand. And, uh, and I say, stop doing it, please. Because if you don't, if you just stay there, all you're doing is just turning up and giving respect to the trauma whisper, which is fine. But there's no place to go. And what I would say is you meet people where they dream. And that means you're on a journey. And then Carl Rogers was sitting on a bench talking to somebody. And I would like to go on a hike. I want to go towards the destination of your dreams. And I know that we don't have much time, so I'm going to tell you what they are. Okay. First, I just want to say that uh, you know, people would deeply, deeply yearn for power and control over the destiny of their lives. It's so amazing. When you think of a, a, a mother in Ukraine walking across Europe with her child in her hand, going to Germany to find a safe place, you know that there's got to be yearning for power and control over the destiny of one's life. What people do to try to find that, uh, how yeah. people can, you know, yeah. I, I, in my recent podcast, as you know, that somebody talked about a, you know, person of war, a prisoner of war, a prisoner of war just said, all you have to do is have a little hope. She was struggling. She was holding on to that hope. It's the whisper of it. That's power and control over the destiny of one's life. The second thing that people want and really, really yearn for is to love and to be loved. I mean, I think we actually came here for this brief experience to love and to be loved. I'm going to give you a secret just for the people that listen to our podcast. I think there's a test at the end. I think it's an uh, essay. And you'll open up the blue book and you'll see one question. The question will be, how well did you love? I think that is really the essence of who we are. And with that, we develop purpose, which is the third possibility of our whole stories. And purpose is about caring for our fellow human beings, creating community, following our yearning for learning and education. And then the final one is to belong, is to be a part of something, to a small group, pack, if you will, a tribe, a family, community, church, 12-step program, whatever it might be. But you belong to something. That, that belonging allows you to be in the humility of your life. And we really want to act in that humbled way every day with gratitude for the experience. Oh, Stephen, that, those four things as you describe them, the extra gift you gave us to know what that ultimate question is going to be. How did you love how well did you love? Well, did you love that we bring that just like you say the prayer before each meeting that we bring that into our into our work. And I'm just 
beyond grateful and moved for you being here for the service and the amazing work you're doing in our community. We haven't even talked about all of the amazing things, but anybody who has listened can feel the the beauty and presence and gift that Stephen brings um, all over the world. So we're lucky to have him here in Portland, Maine, especially. Um, Thank you. Tell us a little where people can find you, Stephen, and we will link everything in the show notes, including links to your books and the new one when it comes out this week. Well, you can always find me in my website, which is Health Education and Training Institute or www.hetimaine.org. You can uh, find the books on Amazon. You can find them in Sherman Books uh, in our community. they're sitting there on the shelf. Just look for the little one, the tiny one. They're they're really great. And I just also want to let our listeners know that Stephen offers immense and varied trainings. And you can go to his website and find so many different trainings for helpers. And I highly, highly recommend that. And they're all accessible at whatever stage you're at. So just, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your wisdom from the heart with everyone, Stephen. What a master. Stephen Andrew is just incredible and always inspires. I hope you loved my conversation with Stephen. And I am just still really feeling so excited about how this can change our work with clients, how it can change the way we live our lives. I wanted to just share a few takeaways from this episode. So one of the really important things was the issue of compassion is about our ability to sit with suffering and not the ability to alleviate suffering. Love in action is the combination of radical acceptance and compassion. So Think about as you're working with your clients that you're listening for the trauma whisper, which is their resilience, their protective moves that help them get through life when they feel that they don't matter, they're not lovable, and the world is not to be trusted. And that the way out of shame is through love. And that is what we are giving as heart-centered therapists to our clients is love and empathy. And as you listen for the trauma whisper, you're also then trying to add a little of that empathy to create a space to hear the second whisper of hopes and dreams. And the hopes and dreams is when you start meeting people where they long to be, not where they're at. That's the hot take that Stephen gives. We don't want to just meet people where they're at, but we meet them where they long to be, where their dreams are of having power and control over their destiny, of being loved and giving love, of having a purpose and feeling capable, and of belonging. So the homework takeaway is to see if you can practice some of the listening deeply or empathy tai chi, as as Stephen said. So let's just quickly review what the empathy tai chi is. You start by seeing, observing the nonverbals, and then listening, what is the client saying? And then taking that and dropping it into your heart to get a felt sense 
of their experience. With that felt sense, you make a gentle guess and you offer it to them. And then you watch how the response lands on the client and knowing that the receiver is always right. And then you repeat it. That's the rhythm. And so what I'd love for you to try is use this empathy Tai Chi with one of your clients in a session. Let me know how it goes. You can send me a DM on Instagram. You can email me. You can pop into the Facebook group and put it in there. So let me know. Try the empathy Tai Chi. And please share this episode if it really meant something to you with another therapist that you know really wants to work more deeply from the heart and help clients to live into their hopes and dreams. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I invite you to subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps other people find this podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.